the best early stage products, like they don't do everything. They aren't trying to be everything for everyone. They're, they do one thing and they do it extremely well. Welcome to Build, the podcast from OpenView. I'm your host, Blake Bartlett, and the show features conversations with software founders, leaders, and investors. Each episode unpacks a new key insight on how to build your company and navigate the fast-changing world of software startups. Today, we're talking founding stories, and we all know the typical founding story of two folks in a garage in Silicon Valley building the next big thing and surviving off of ramen and Red Bull, but that story, it's more of a legend or a fable than real life. And sure, Steve Jobs and Woz started Apple that way, but that was the mid-1970s. What about today? How are startup ideas hatched and built in the 21st century? Good questions. And thankfully, our guest in this episode is Yao Enning, co-founder and CEO of Malomo. And his founding story is much more common these days in the modern era. Before becoming a SaaS founder, Yao was a services founder. He ran an agency that built tons of websites and apps for clients, and like many agencies and consultancies, he started seeing a consistent pain point from his clients. In fact, it was so consistent that he decided to solve the problem once and for all with a SaaS product rather than reinventing the wheel in a serial fashion for client after client. And many other SaaS startups have a similar founding story. So with that said, it's now time to ditch the old fable and hear the real-life story of Malomo and how other services founders can follow in their footsteps. All that and more on this episode of Build, so let's dive in with Yao Enning. Well, Yao, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, very pumped to be here. Been a long-time listener, so it's a bit surreal to kind of be on the podcast as a, as a guest, so thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about your journey as a founder, initially as an agency founder, and then the things that you saw that led you to become a SaaS founder and some of the lessons learned along the way. So that's probably a really good place to start. (laughs) So so you did run an agency for for seven plus years and you were building apps and websites for, you know, many different types of clients, you know, many entrepreneurs and founders included. And I guess, you know, in seeing so many opportunities, what did you learn, you know, kind of best practices for building products as founders? Yeah, there were so many, you know, we built about a hundred different web and and SaaS products over, over the seven year period and really grateful that like we had that opportunity because there's, there was, the learnings were immense. Like I, I I try to sit back and reflect on, on that period and like, the, the, I, I felt like I could condense the, the learnings, the major learnings into kind of three buckets that when we were working with our clients, like we saw them running into time and time again. So like the first, the first big mistake that we saw founders make was that they tried to build like their seven year vision today. So like we joked that those were the founders that were trying to boil the ocean. Like it's, it's super easy to just see all the possibilities when you're a founder, all the opportunities. Like we'd have founders that would come to us with like 10 page specs on features that they wanted to build. And we always knew right then that like, you know, with this, we're, we're pretty sure that this founder is not going to be successful. <laughs> Cause it, I mean, it's, it's hard to like narrow down your focus. Like you often, like you often think nobody will want your product unless it has all the bells and whistles in it. But the, the best early stage products, like they don't do everything. They aren't trying to be everything for every, everyone. You have to be able to separate the vision of where you're trying to go 
with the realities of where you are today. And if you can't take the most important part of that seven-year vision and boil it down into something you can deliver in three to six months, you're going to have a really hard time building anything that matters. So if you can't, if you can't separate those two things, like we saw it often led to the second problem we saw a lot, which is like founders would often target the right customers, but at the wrong time in the company's trajectory. So as an entrepreneur, you always sort of have this, this like dream list of customers in the back of your mind. Like you, you position your product to serve that audience from day one. And I think that's a huge mistake. There's a, there's a concept called the technology adoption curve, which I'm sure Blake, you know, you know, very well. Basically, it's like this mental model for how new technology is adopted in a market. And, and the way that this happens is there are, there are groups of people that adopt a product in a particular order, right? You've got the innovators, early adopters, the early majority, late majority, and laggards. And all these groups have very different needs and expectations when it comes to adopting, adopting new tech. Most of the time, like the entrepreneurs, like we all want the types of customers that would fall in like the early or late majority category. And so the best customers to do that with are not mainstream customers, but they're rather the like innovators and early adopters. Like the best way to think about this is like your earliest customers have to be as innovative as you are. These customers don't care that the product's fully featured. They just see the same future that you see and give you the best insights on like what that future looks like. So they'll oftentimes, they'll also like forgive your early missteps, like the, the feature gaps you have, they, they, will, they will give you the benefit of the doubt because they really are focused on also seeing that vision come to life. And so those people, they view themselves as trendsetters and they love to, they love to like discover new technology and evangelize that tech to their communities. And so it's really important to like find those early customers because you got you kind of have to like stage out your your progress to match like the that technology adoption cycle. Like the early innovators, they'll signal to the early adopters what's new and upcoming and hot. And then those early adopters will signal to the late adopters, you know, again and so on and so forth. So it's really important to target the, the right customer at the right stage you are as a company. And then the last major problem we saw was that like once you identified the one thing that you should focus on and be 10x better at and who the right first customer set is, the you have a tendency to, to start building the product immediately. And this was probably the most fatal mistake we saw. Like customers don't, they don't buy software. They buy solutions to problems. Like we actively pay for problems to go away. I think that's a really subtle mindset shift that founders need to have. It's like, you know, you have an idea, like knee-jerk reaction, go build the idea. When really, like you should take the opposite approach of like, try to build nothing for as long as humanly possible. It sounds really, really weird. But like the companies that we worked with that just killed it, came to us having started their businesses basically as consulting firms like they were already working with a customer base to solve a problem through a service that they were offering and they were looking to like they came to us looking to build technology to automate the things that they were they were currently doing manually and and they succeeded because they like they understood the problem so deeply that their customers faced because they were the ones like actively solving the problem on behalf of their customers 
And so like we often joked at our agency, like there are two types of entrepreneurs we worked with. The ones that believe that they didn't need their own product to get to revenue and the ones that were wrong. Like, and so the, the, the ways that we saw those customers like making that work is like that actually like use two or three off the shelf products kind of stitch them together and they and then that's how they like manage the delivery of their service and and it was it was like a super potent and effective strategy that we saw working so yeah those are the those are kind of the three things that we often saw our our customers really struggle with early on in the in those first two you know kind of what i hear in that as a common theme is well, certainly as a starting point, entrepreneurs and founders are ambitious, kind of comes with the territory, but it's also very easy to be too ambitious, yeah, <laughs> especially yep. maybe for a first time founder. Um, and so to be sensitive to your eyes being bigger than your stomach and wanting to sort of, like you said, you have this vision and you want to build it from day one and feeling the need to build it all you know, to completion before you want to get it in front of customers. And that will, it's too much, you're biting off too much. Um, and then it's also going to take way too long. And so yes. figuring out the right starting point and then being patient is incredibly important. Yeah. Like, yeah, patience, man. It is, it's really hard. Cause like you, you, like you can see it, you can see the future and you're rushing to get there. And it's so hard to just like take a step back and like methodically work through the stages to get there. Exactly. And I think it also applies to to the second bucket that you're talking about, which is being realistic about who is ready to adopt your product today. I think similar to the idea of being overly ambitious, you could be overly ambitious and say, well, this is a product that's experienced by the largest organizations in the world. So I am going to sell seven figure deals to blue chip five, fortune 500 customers. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to start. Yeah. It's pretty hard to start there. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so being realistic about, all right, well, what's the starting product we're going to build and like, don't build a seven year vision, build a solution to a starting problem and build it for those who are, you know, most apt and ready to adopt today, the early adopters, but knowing specifically who your early adopters are, not just going after these vague, you know, somewhere out there, there's an early adopter, I know it. Yeah, it's like, it's funny, like, there's, there's a common joke in the enterprise, like nobody ever gets, like, fired for buying Salesforce, right? Because, you know, that Salesforce is the, the juggernaut, it's a proven product in the market, like, when people adopt technology, they're they're putting a little bit of a personal stake in like advocating for that solution inside their organization and if it's wrong like they they themselves lose personal credibility and so like the 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 that late adopter group like you said who it's like you want to go after those customers cuz that's who you want but like they they need to see other people succeeding and believe in that success and the results before like they can they can really effectively sell that vision and solution inside the organization. And so like, it is really important to like have that, like even if that's your future goal, you've got to like, hey, there are people that we have to prove that this works for before we get to these, these bigger massive deals that we, we ultimately feel like is our, is our real long-term target customer in the market. So let's bring it into the very practical. <laughs> so for your own journey, uh, when you did this transition from agency founder, building products for others, and then got to a point where you said, all right, now I'm going to build my own thing. How did some of these lessons influence the decisions you made and how you went about building Malomo? Yeah. So 
for for super quick context, Malomo, we are a shipment tracking platform in the e-commerce space. So in order for our product to work, we have to connect into a ton of large scale software systems in the in our e-commerce merchants tech stack. So like we have to connect into their order platforms like Shopify to pull in customer order data. We have to connect into like the global delivery network in UPS and FedEx and international carriers to get all of the tracking information. We've got to connect into their marketing platforms so that they can like craft and trigger the right messaging about where their order is in transit. And so all of those are like super large scale integrations that we'd have to build. And that's like super daunting. It's like in, in order to just get to market, like we've got to build a ton of tech. And we, we didn't really know if people would, would, one, if they would use it, like if this is a problem that people had. And even if they used it, would they be willing to pay us for it? Like we, we really wanted to prove those two things out before we went down the path of like spending any energy on this. And so we did what, all of our successful clients did was we launched an agency. So it was a post-purchase agency. Like we kept the focus pretty broad. We were going to help our customers like understand, you know, how to drive down support tickets related to people asking about where their order is. And so like we approached our, our, uh, you know, a couple of friendlies that we knew in the space and, and a couple of people that we didn't know and, and kind of said, Hey, we, you know, we, we've got this agency. We had worked with, several other Shopify merchants of the ecosystem. So we like we had a general understanding of like the nomenclature, how to position and, and target these customers, what to talk about. And so like we positioned this as like a service offering. And again, like we when we went to these customers, like we had we had no software to actually like trigger these emails out to customers. So we were like, we basically like we told our earliest customers, hey, we we have this software. Like we're going to we're going to provide a service offering to design out this this post purchase experience and then uh, we've got this plugin that you can you can um you can plug into your store and it will automatically send all this data to trigger these emails out. What we ended up doing was so convoluted. It was it was so our customers thought there was software there. What we did was we asked for our customers login info. We said we need the login info to like make these connections happen. We ultimately would log into their Shopify store. When a new order would come in, we'd grab all that information about the customer, the line items. We would log all that data into a spreadsheet. We'd also grab the tracking number, and then we'd go to USPS.com, plug in the tracking number, and look at tracking. And if the status, we check it like three or four times a day. If the status changed, we would log that new status into the spreadsheet. And then we asked for login information to the marketing platform. And we would go in and... For each customer, when the status changed, we trigger an email one by one for every single customer. Did this for hundreds of orders, right? We were sending out thousands of emails manually. It was the it was one of the worst summers of our lives, like just doing all this stuff. But it helped us prove several things. So, like the spreadsheet at that point, that was the product. Like we had no software. The, the spreadsheet was the product. We identified like two really interesting insights. The one was that like. The open rates on these emails were 60, 70, 80%. When you look at like a normal like marketing email in e-commerce, you get a 20% open rate. And the click-through rates were like 20, 30% when normal click-through rates are 2%. So it's like, oh my gosh, like these customers are super, the consumers are super engaged. Like they actually really want to know where their order is. And 
every single email that we sent, like if it was like, hey, it's it's just shipped, there's been a problem, like we're aware of it, it's it should be at your doorstep tomorrow. Like every single one got opened along that value chain. And we saw the customer support tickets just drop dramatically, just a nosedive. And so it's like, oh yeah, like proactive notification seems so simple. Proactive notification on delivery matters a ton to consumers. And it actually has a, a tangible impact on the businesses that we serve. And in the e-commerce space, like the second insight was like everybody, everybody is like highly focused on growth. And so could we actually harness this engagement to like drive a secondary growth lever for the merchant, which is obviously cross on upsell during this period of time? And that like unlocked like this, this like insane growth for the merchant. It was like we were seeing repeat purchase rates in the two to 4%. And that revenue was like highly profitable, right? It's your existing customers. You don't have to market to them to acquire them again. And so it was just amazing for us to see. And that's the data that we used to like prove, oh my gosh, yes, there's a real value proposition. We're solving a real need. Let's go out and build the technology to make this work. So that was great for us. Like those insights, well, we had a hunch that that, that those those problems existed. Like we wouldn't have really known and uncover the second insight to build from had we not like launched this agency model to like solve this problem for our for our customers. So you basically started you started a software company without starting a software company. Uh, yes. To the outside world, it looked like a software company, <laughs> but then behind yep. the website, behind the scenes, it was just a bunch of you, you know, kind of putting things into a spreadsheet, you know, sending uh, emails manually and everything. And so it was very, very manual, very service based. But that it kind of ties back to the one of the lessons you mentioned at the beginning, which is making sure not to build something before you validated the solution. I think yeah. that it's definitely easy and, and almost everybody validates the problem, even or either through their own experience. I lived the problem, I had the problem, or I saw the problem everywhere, or I, maybe I did research and I interviewed people and they all told me about the problem. They all diagnosed and problem the same way. Great, but you need to do the same research for the solution that you're building as well. And you need to do the same validation to make sure you actually hit what the market needs. Yeah. And so the way that you were doing it was, you know, through this manual service offering, let's make sure before we build a line of code, let's make sure that this solution to this problem is actually valuable to the end customer, the person that bought the thing from the, the from the merchant and to the merchant, to the service people, the support people, et cetera. And it sounds like you saw the validation in spades. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, like in and it's like having having come from the agency space, like we had the resources, right? We like we had a we had a bench of designers, developers, product managers, and so like it would have been really easy for us to like start building, but you know we we really like we saw how much failure people had by doing that starting off, and so we forced ourselves to just go like, hey, let's just launch this agency. Like we'll kind of have it separate from the core agency, and and uh, that's going to be the thing that we go out and use to validate the market. And uh, the other thing that came to mind as you were saying that, like software is super rigid, like right, it works exactly how you design it to work. So if you're wrong even slightly, like you've lost time, you've lost money, like potentially lost trust with your customer, it can be costly to to go back and rebuild. When you provide a service, you can adjust instantly, like on the fly. So you can try, you can try multiple different solutions and see the different angles of how they how they impact results. So like you might have with one solution, you might have uncovered like, oh, this works, and then like left it at that. But like if you didn't employ a second solution, 
that actually worked even better. Like it's hard for you to, to pivot. Like it's offering the service helped us just throw a bunch of things at the wall to see what would work and then pick even the best one out of the things that were working. And then also discover new things like you yes. saw with the repeat purchase rate as well. Yes, exactly. Like you can almost get to a better solution even before you build anything, which also has a massive impact on go to market. Yeah. And, and, and if you had been too wedded to your own solution, and if you had built the solution from the beginning, you wouldn't have maybe seen this opportunity. One, you might've built the solution wrong, but two, you might've also not seen the potential for additional upsell and all of the incremental value that you can provide to, to clients. So, so, so that's yes. huge. So yeah. I'm curious, like the next step, so you validated the, the solution through the service offering, you know, kind of software, um, you know, software company to the, to the outside world, really behind yeah. the scenes, a lot of manual effort. And so then you said, all right, now it's time to actually build this out and make it a real software company through and through. So how does one do that, especially for folks that are listening right now that might be in the shoes that you were in in the past where they know services because they, you know, run an agency or a consultancy, or maybe they're a freelancer. And so the, what they default to is this high touch manual service offering. So how do you actually productize and not just kind of fall into old habits and, you know, build a services business by accident all over again? Yeah, it's, it is, it is a super delicate balance. Like, yeah. And like service agencies be servicing. Like yeah. it, it is, like you said, like old habits die hard. It's so hard to not just get into motion and just stay on the motion. So like, I think there's, there's maybe, there's maybe two ways to do this. The first way, uh, we actually did both of these, but the first way you can think about it is like separate the product team from the agency. So you almost have to have like this walled garden between the two entities. So even if like the service part of the business continues going on, you can't like have your entire team like commingled, still focusing on both because it'll inevitably be a distraction to both sides of the business. Like it takes, it takes intense focus to go from zero to one in a product. And so like we, we did that, like we, we just had one engineer from our agency focused on product development and like they didn't, they never saw anything around the consulting part of the business, never got pulled into like billable hours. And that's like one of the hardest things in the agency. Every person on your team is a cost center and a, and hopefully like a profit center. And so when you knock one resource out, it's like it has an impact to your bottom line. So it's it's super easy to just pull that resource back into the consulting part of the business. Um, so we were really diligent about separating the two out. And uh, and like you have to be really disciplined, right? Like we we spent like we always kind of knew we were going to launch a product from the very start. We just you know we just didn't have an idea that we were super passionate about and saw a unique market opportunity. So we just stockpiled cash from the agency until we found the thing. And then it was like, okay, that, that stockpiled cash is going to fund this single engineer working on the product. So that, that, that definitely worked. But the second thing that we did was that, which was actually, once we like got on the path of like building the product, it's going to sound super, super weird, but we, we actually fired our consulting clients. And the reason being like, you set this precedent with them where like they'll always view you as the consultant. So they're always going to be asking you for more consulting services or one-off projects that are tangen tangential to the thing that you're working on. It very subtly leads you away from the core offering that your product is targeted at. And like, you don't recognize it right away. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, what the hell? How are we doing all these weird random things 
And so like, we just, we just decided like, let's just shut down the consulting arm completely. Like once we validated the idea with those customers, we switched back into product development mode. And I know like lots of folks that kept consulting, like I've, I've talked with a lot of agencies about this, like they kept consulting through the transition and it can work. It just takes a long time. Like, cause you, that walled off engineer will slowly get pulled into the one-off projects of the consulting agency too. So we were just like, let's just fire these customers. We're like, Hey, we're really sorry. Like, we cannot continue to support you along this dimension. We'll happily help you find a replacement. And that's super painful to do because you've built up a lot of like trust with those customers. But like we felt like it was necessary in order to like hit the end goal. Yeah, drawing that that really hard line in the sand versus trying to kind of straddle and say, well, we'll keep our consulting clients happy and we'll keep our product uh, customers happy. It's just too divided and, and there's too many competing priorities. So you know, if you've gotten the the solution validated, then committing to it. Yeah. So much so that, you know, we're shutting down the old thing, you know, we're changing the name and like, we're not doing services anymore, full stop. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you burn all the bridges. You're, you're out there. Yeah. Uh, you have to make it work. <laughs> no going back now. Well, <laughs> yeah. technically there always is going back. If it doesn't work, like you can just set, set up a new agency. So that is very true. The downside is very, very low at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But That's okay, right. move, moving to, I think, a very important question. Yeah. And, and we'll kind of wrap with this, but there still is a role for services in a SaaS company. So 100%. I guess, you know, bringing it full circle, what is that role? What have you kept and brought over from your agency days? What have you sort of left behind for good? Yeah. Yeah. I love this question. So there are a couple of ways that we look at services today. And like, again, like we have to be very, uh, the DNA of the company is kind of like services because of our backgrounds. So we have to tr actively try hard not to like go down this path of being completely service business. So the couple ways we look at this, the first is we, the first way we look at services is like, can we guarantee our customers success? So like your customers, do they not have enough time or resources to like use or adopt your product? If not then provide services and kind of become an extension of their team. So even if they aren't using your product actively, like you are using your product on their behalf and they see the end result and success of it. If they see the end result and success, it's likely they'll commit more resources internally to like optimizing that. And so like services is just a way to like activate and get success on that initial customer. And that kind of goes back to the point you know, we talked about earlier, which is like customers don't buy products, right? They buy solutions to their problems and services is a way to achieve that. The second way we look at services is a way to fill in feature gaps that are on the short-term roadmap. So it's like, hey, we, oh man, like we, we see that there's real value here, but like it's, you know, naturally it's going to take some product resources to like build this feature. Can we provide the same outcome through services until the product team can catch up? If they're not on the short-term roadmap, like we have to be very diligent about like, we really shouldn't build this, or sorry, we really shouldn't provide a service for this if we're not sure we're actually gonna build an automation for it. The third is like, we ask ourselves if the services are repeatable. So is it something that we can do for a customer month after month? If so, then we might wanna turn it into a productized service. And, and then like, if enough people opt into that, productized offering you can it's like a, it's a good signal that you should actually turn that into a feature too because you you're technically like you're 
it's funny, SaaS is software as a service, like as a service is the important thing. Software is only the, the delivery mechanism. And so if you are providing a service repeatedly that customers are paying for, good signal that it's, it's, a, it's a feature, they'll continue to pay for it. One thing that, um, that really resonated with, with that that you're saying is that services can be a, a sort of bridge to future product. And I really like that a lot. It's almost kind of bringing back the first idea of, you know, create a services version of the thing you want to build. You can keep doing that with individual features and incremental yes. features. Yeah. But knowing, is it actually a bridge to something? Like, are we going there already anyway? If so, you can kind of get there faster and validate along the way with services. But it's also, you know, you need to be cautious that it's not that it is a bridge to somewhere, not a bridge to nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it can't just become this appendage, you know, appendage onto your core business that like, well, we got this core business, but we also have these random services on the side that we're doing. I don't really know why. I guess they're paying us money for it. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that ends up creating the distraction rather than the, uh, the pr productive path to where you want to get to. Yeah. My man, preach. It is so easy to follow the money with services. So, so easy. And and like, it's hard too, because big customers will ask you for a lot. Like they will want a lot and you will want to give it to them because you want to keep the ARR in the business, but there'd be dragons there. Like it's really hard to like <laughs> not get caught into this place you don't want to be. And like, you, yeah, you hit on the last point I was going to make, which is like exactly that. Like you... You should use them to get insights on your future product vision. Like, can we learn something new from the services that will give us like some unique competitive advantage in the future? Or can you like use them to test out early ideas for, for the, for the product? So that's like, that's how we try to look at services. It's not perfect. Like it, it's, you know, we have these guardrails and you try to abide by them and it definitely is hard to like say no to specific things and, and say yes to others. But that's how we try to view the lens through. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think understanding the journey from agency founder to SaaS founder and how services can be a superpower and can be a strength and can be an enabler to building software is incredibly powerful, incredibly compelling. So Yao, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast today. Yeah, thanks a ton. I had a lot of fun. This is great. Thanks for checking out Build. If you enjoyed the conversation today, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so that others can find the show as well.